Hey guys, just a quick note before the episode kicks off. I just wanted to let you know that on the 16th of June, I am going to be at a podcasting meetup with the True Crime Club in London. London! It's on the 16th at the Silver Cross Pub in Whitehall. It starts at 5pm and there's going to be a number of podcasts there. Murder Mile podcast, Red Handed, Nothing Rhymes with Murder, Killing It podcast, Marissa Monsters is going to be there. Whole bunch of excellent podcasts we're all going to meet up say hello to one another and to listeners. But more importantly, there's going to be a prize draw at that event. So the prize draw is being organized by the lovely ladies over at Nothing Rhymes with Murder, and it is to raise funds for End the Backlog. And I'm going to put in the show notes the links to enter the prize draw and also to donate for the prize draw, trying to make it so that it's nice and legal that we don't fall foul of any gambling laws in any country or state that you might be in. So basically, you just enter the prize draw, do your donation to end the backlog, and you'll be entered into that draw, and you could win all sorts of goodies. There's over 25 true crime podcasts taking part, including myself, but more importantly, the likes of Case File, Generation Y, Insight, True Crime Fan Club, to name just a few. And as I said, all the money going to end the backlog. So check out the links in the show notes and hopefully I'll see you on the 16th of June. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast and this is the story of the Nally case. The dwelling of every citizen is inviolable, and shall not be forcibly entered, save in accordance with law. Article 40.5, Bunrock Tnaherin, the Irish Constitution. Increasingly, over the past number of decades, Ireland has become more centralised, with the majority of its population focused around Dublin, and to a lesser extent the cities of Cork and Galway. The countryside has been emptied out of its former residents and communities. With this, there have been a number of other problems, as resources are also directed elsewhere. Closure of post offices and guard stations, and the disappearance of local amenities such as pubs and parish halls that held social events. As this rural isolation deepened, so did the fear in the small farming communities that were left. People, mainly elderly people, lived out on their own in isolated houses dotted amongst the fields. And a startling trend began where they would find themselves targeted for robbery. Not the kind of sneak attacks that we're used to thinking of, though, where the burglar enters the house under the cover of darkness or while the homeowner is out during the day. This new trend involved brazen and violent attacks against homeowners, Those responsible would enter the home with no qualms in letting the resident know that they were there, and they would violently attack those inside in order to get a hold of the valuables that they were after in the house. 
The first of this kind of attack happened on the 19th of December 1981. Martin Ward, James Cleary, Charlie Conroy and his brother Eddie Conroy first broke into the house of Mary Connell in Meyer Hill, County Galway. She was an 83-year-old woman who lived there alone. She had never married. The men had hoped that the elderly lady would have cash stuffed away in her house under mattresses and in tins in the kitchen. They were wrong. She had nothing. When they broke in at 8pm that night, she told them that she had no cash in the house, and they hit her, and they tied her to a chair with an electrical cord from her kettle, and beat her. Then they left, empty-handed. But the four men were not done. Not done at all. They headed over the Mayo border to Thomastown, where they knew four elderly brothers lived alone in a farmhouse. And they knew that these men definitely had cash. They'd been there earlier in the day, going door-to-door selling gates and supplies to farmers. The Gilmore brothers had bought fencing stakes and paid in cash. No problem. When the four men arrived at the cottage, it was late evening. There were only two of the brothers present at the time, Edward and Peter. John and Michael were off out visiting neighbours. The four men had no weapons, but they were happy to use whatever was at hand. They trashed the house, broke the furniture, and beat the two old men with legs from broken chairs relentlessly. They took a hundred and seventy pounds and left the two men for dead. John and Michael arrived back at the house to find their two other brothers dying on the floor of the kitchen. Michael held Edward, who he knew was dying, until he passed away in his arms. He said he wanted his brother's last moments to be of someone who loved him, holding him. Peter was brought to the hospital, where, a few weeks later, he died of his injuries. Mary Connell was also brought to the hospital. She died three months later, but it couldn't be proven that her injuries from that night had contributed directly to her death. The four men were caught quickly. This happened before the cutbacks in rural Gardee, and community policing played a huge role in the apprehension of the men. They knew of the gang of four men and decided to round them up early in the investigation. When the Gardee found John Cleary, he had blood embedded on the soles of his boots. The four men were invited to the Garda station to talk to the police, and by the next day, all four of them had made admissions relating to the two crimes. At the time, Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act didn't exist, so Gardee could only quote-unquote invite suspects to attend the station for questioning. The Gardee had no specific right or ability to detain someone other than for charging or arrest. Thankfully, this wasn't something that most criminals were aware of, but in this case, When the men were brought to trial, their lawyers sought to have their admissions suppressed because they argued that the Gardaí had no right to detain them. Their lawyers argued that even though the Gardaí said that the men were able to leave, that didn't mean that the men knew and understood that, and that therefore the detention had been unlawful. The confessions got during this time should not be allowed. Thankfully, the trial judge did not agree with the defence argument, and the confessions were allowed in. 
John Cleary was convicted of the murder of Edward Gilmore and the assault of Mary Connell, along with breaking and entering. In retrial, after the first jury failed to reach a verdict, Eddie Conroy and Martin Ward were convicted of the manslaughter of Edward Gilmore, the assault of Mary Connell, and of breaking and entering. January 1984 saw the conviction of Charlie Conroy for the murder of Edward Gilmore, the assault of Mary Connell, and breaking and entering with intent to steal. He had been tried once before, but yet again the jury had failed to reach a verdict based on the issues of the detention of the men. The judge said that he had been the ringleader of the Gang of Four, but this conviction was quashed by the Supreme Court in 1986 because submissions during the trial were held in the presence of the jury. In February 1987, he was again sentenced to life for the murder of Edward Gilmore and the assault of Miss Connell. In total, he had been convicted of the crimes three times. Since then, Section 4 has been introduced, allowing the Guardi to detain and question those that they have a reasonable suspicion of involvement in crime. The loophole was quickly closed up after the mess caused by the many trials of the four men. Henry Dixon was a 76-year-old former Mayo Gaelic football player who owned a pub in Clare Morris, County Mayo. He was broken into twice. Once, on the 5th of January 1995, a family entered his pub. His clientele were exclusively local, and so these strangers with their children stood out. The kids asked for the toilet, and he gave directions out to the back where the loo was, but the kids headed upstairs, towards Mr. Dixon's living quarters. When they didn't come back, Henry got suspicious and ran up the stairs to find that the kids had let themselves into his bedroom, found his safe, and opened it, and had bags of money on them. They ran past him on the stairs, and by the time he got back down to the pub, the lot of them were gone. The following Monday, the 9th of January, 1995, Mr. Dixon was broken into again. This time, he was in bed asleep, and the intruders headed straight up to the bedroom, where they tied him to the bed and beat him. A local Garda had convinced him to lodge the substantial amount of cash into the bank in the previous days after the first raid. But Henry had decided to keep back a small amount of money, thankfully, which the raiders made off with when they realised that that was all that was in the house. He was very seriously injured in the attack, but did eventually recover. The Gardaí discovered that the attack had been carried out by Miley Connors of Talla in Dublin and Ned Stokes of Ballymun, also Dublin. The two were convicted of the raids later that year after pleading guilty. Elderly farmers listening to the radio could not have missed the news that spates of break-ins with violent elements were those living in farmhouses on their own or perhaps a couple of elderly people living together would be tied up and beaten and possibly even threatened with guns. Podrick Nally was one such farmer. He lived on his own in a farmhouse in Funchanal, County Mayo. And on Thursday, October 14, 2004, his worst fears came true. He called the local Garda station in Clare Morris at 2.20pm and Garda Pauline Golden answered the phone to be told that there were two intruders on his land. They had been there before, around Christmas the year previous, and he had shot one of them. 
Podrick Nally thought he was dead. A sergeant and inspector detective were notified, as well as the ambulance service and the local priest, Father Colum Kilcoyne. At the same time, Tom Ward turned up at the Hedford Garda station and told the Garda on duty that his father had been shot. He rushed back out of the building and jumped into a blue opal cadet with Garda Brick following in a marked car. They drove for about six miles and stopped outside a house. Tom pointed the Garda in the direction of where his father lay at the Nally house and said he wasn't going any closer. The 18-year-old Tom Ward said he was too frightened to get any closer to the house. He said that the two of them had stopped at the Nally house that afternoon because they wanted to see if a car that was sitting outside was for sale. His dad went into the house and then Tom heard a shot. A man came out to the car and asked him if that was his dad that had come up to the house. When Tom said that it was, the man told him, well, he's not coming out. That's when Tom drove off to the Garda station as fast as he could. He said in a statement that he had even stopped three separate cars on the way there, asking for them to ring the Gardee, but that none of these people had phones, so he had continued into Hedford. The Gardee from Clare Morris had already arrived at this point, and they were in the house with Nally. So Tom and Garda Brick stayed in the patrol car waiting, until Tom asked if they could get closer to see how his dad was. Sergeant Carroll from Clare Morris approached the car and told Tom that his dad, John Frog Ward, had been shot and badly injured and was still laying out in the field. Tom broke down at this news. He asked the sergeant if his father was dead, and Carroll nodded. He was. Carroll put his hand on the young man's shoulder to comfort him. Tom wanted to see his father and demanded how he had gotten into the field given John had gone into the house to talk to the owner of the car. He was told that although he wasn't under arrest, he couldn't see his father's body. When Tom saw Nally, he became enraged and demanded to know whether Podrick Nally was going to pay for what he did to his father. He said then, quote, I suppose he'll get away with it like always, end quote. Garda Brick told Tom, who was visibly distressed at this point, that they had to figure out what had happened before anything could be done. But it's not hard to see why Tom had said he had little faith in the Gardee. The travelling community in Ireland is much maligned. For those who may be unfamiliar with the term, I'm going to give a general description. But it comes with the health warning that this is very general and based on my understanding only. Hopefully what follows will be a fair representation of the community, but please, if you have anything to add or want to pull me up on something, let me know. I'm by no means an expert on this subject. Irish travellers are an ethnic group found mainly in Ireland and the UK, but there are small pockets of the US and parts of Australia where you might find travellers. They live a traditional life based around moving around communities, buying and selling things, and are primarily associated with metalwork, scrap and horse trading. The disparaging terms knacker and tinker are often used against them. They have their own culture and language and are very religious as a rule. They tend to marry early and generally, and I mean generally, 
have traditional roles within the household. Their families tend to be quite large, even by Irish standards, with kids numbering in the teens not being unusual. Today, the traditional lifestyle of moving around is less viable, and so in Ireland, there are what's known as halting sites designated by the local councils. The settled community, i.e. everyone else in Ireland, tend to object strongly to having such sites located near their homes. The objection will usually cite stereotypical, quote-unquote, antisocial behaviour, like dumping, etc., that's associated with the travelling community. But there's no doubt that there's a prejudice against travellers. It's not uncommon to hear that hotels, restaurants and pubs will refuse service to travellers and not take bookings for family events of travellers, citing fear of fights and things like that. There's a kind of general sense that travellers are con artists, living off the state but refusing to play by the rules and hiding behind discrimination to try and get away with poor behaviour. But this general sense translates often into actual discrimination against individuals simply due to their membership of the community. And no doubt, that is hugely problematic, unfair, immoral, and indeed illegal. All in all, it's undeniable that there have been incidents that understandably worry the settled community when it comes to travellers in their area. But in my opinion, that does not mean that members of the travelling community should be marginalised and discriminated against. Their traditional lifestyle often puts them at a disadvantage. I don't know, maybe I'm too idealistic, but I hope that there is some way that we can all get along while allowing cultural differences to be celebrated and promoted and protected. Yeah, I probably am. Anyway, back to the story. After Tom Ward was ushered back into the patrol car, Garda Brick asked him again what had happened that afternoon. He said that the two had stopped to ask about a white car that was sitting outside the Nally house. John had gone in and Tom had waited in the car. When he had heard the shot, he revved the engine and he watched as a man came out of the house and got into the white car. He said this time that the man had not said anything to him and Tom had driven to Headford at that point. He wanted to call his mother, but his mobile was dead. Garda Brick told him that she shouldn't hear this news on the phone and arranged for a Garda from Galway to call out to her. Tom was inconsolable and got out of the car to throw up. Garda Brick told Tom that he'd drop him home as soon as the inspector said he could. In the meantime, he was going to be brought back to Westport Garda Station. When Superintendent Podrick O'Toole arrived on the scene, he took charge. The family of John Ward had gathered and wanted to see the body of their deceased family member, but they couldn't be allowed right up to the crime scene, and instead they were brought to a road adjacent to the field and allowed to view the scene, complete with the forensic tent erected to cover John Ward's body. The superintendent also allowed a single photographer and TV camera to come close to the scene to take its shots, provided that they were shared with the other media outlets present. The Guardi decided on this course because they knew that the news stations would need such footage. They were only doing their jobs, after all. But they would only allow one, nominated amongst them all, to come up close so as to ensure that the scene was properly preserved. The Ward family were not happy that the media were allowed so close to the scene, 
given that they were only allowed onto the road. They understandably thought that this was due to prejudice against their community. Meanwhile, Podrick Nally told the Gardaí a different tale of what had happened that afternoon. He said he had been out working in the farm and came in for his dinner at about half one. When he finished eating, he sat listening to the radio news headlines, and then he heard a car revving its engine, as if someone had put their foot to the floor. He got up and went outside and saw Tom sitting in his cadet. He was suspicious and asked Tom, Well, where's your mate then? Tom said he'd gone to knock at the back door, and so that's where Podrick headed. When he got round to the back of the house, he saw John Ward crouched over and pushing in his back door. Nally then went to his shed to retrieve his gun. It was a 65-year-old single-barrel shotgun that had once been his father's. The bullets it was loaded with were nearly five years old. But Podrick thought he'd be able to scare the man off with it. When he got out of the shed, John was already in his kitchen. Podrick's hands were shaking. He knew it was two against one, and he said that the fear meant that his hands were unsteady and that the gun went off without his meaning it to. This enraged John Ward, who rushed out of the house and towards the farmer, and he grabbed him around the neck. There was a tussle, and John tried to grab the gun off Nally. Nally then beat the intruder around the head with a stick and pushed him into some stinging nettles, before running back to the shed to get more cartridges for the rifle. John was calling out for his son over and over, and Nally was terrified that the other man would come to this guy's assistance and that he would be killed, he said. He grabbed up two extra cartridges when he reloaded the gun and shot John as he ran out of the gate. John fell immediately and Nally knew he had hit him and that the man was dead. He then lifted the man's body into the field as he didn't want to leave him lying in the road for everyone to see. Nally also said that if the other man, the one in the car, had come back and seen his comrade dead on the road, he figured he would have been killed straight away. Nally told the guardy who arrived at the scene that he had been contemplating suicide in the run-up to this incident because he couldn't take living with the worry of being broken into or assaulted in his own home anymore. When the guardy arrived at the scene at five past three that day, they cordoned off the area. John Ward had been pronounced dead a few minutes before by a local doctor. Tom Ward was arrested on suspicion of burglary and was brought to Westport Garda Station. He said he wasn't there to break into the house, but only out with his dad looking for a car to buy. He was questioned under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and was subsequently released without charge that night at 10pm. Podrick Nally was also arrested that night. He was taken to Castle Baragarda Station and questioned under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. He said that he had in fact seen Tom Ward before that day and insisted that he had called by the house in the summer previous to ask directions to the lake. He told the guardee about how he had seen the wards before the previous summer, and even two weeks previously when he said he had seen John Ward looking for directions for the lake too. He said he knew something was going to happen, and had cried when his sister had left the house that weekend previous, feeling that something terrible was going to happen, and that his worst fears were going to be realised. He also told the guardie about the previous break-in in his place, 
the February before, where the back door had been busted in and a chainsaw had been taken. Podrick Nally was born and bred in the farm in Funchinaw, just outside Cross, County Mayo. He loved the farm and the nature around him, and never felt the call to bigger towns or cities. He was happy living a peaceful and idyllic farming life. He was born after his parents had bought the farm and built the small cottage on the land. It was January 30th, 1944, and he was the eldest. His sister Maureen was born the year after him. The two walked the two miles to the local national school. Podrick left after he finished fourth class at about age 10. Maureen went on to secondary school and ended up becoming a teacher. He had decided to work the farm full-time with his father, who often suffered from ill health. Podrick enjoyed keeping the cattle and sheep and living a quiet life. He liked going to the cinema, but didn't enjoy the dance halls much. He was busy working, and he never married. He joined the civil defence and enjoyed the drills and meetings he attended. He also got involved in the Irish Farmers Association, which is a political group, and took part in a number of protests organised by the IFA. He took part in local card games. Pubs had never been his thing, and was often seen at the marts and agricultural shows all over the west of Ireland in Mayo and Galway. He continued to live with his parents. His father had died in 1991, and after that his mother continued to keep the house and help with the hens and pigs, until she too passed away in 1999. He bought the first car in the family, as well as the first tractor. He never did own a phone, not until his sister bought him a mobile just after the first break-in in 2004. His fear had begun growing in 2001, though, after a number of incidents in his area and on his farm. People began taking things from the farmyard. He noticed car and footprints in the yard, appearing while he was gone, and once in 2001, his house was broken into and some blankets and plates were stolen. In February 2004, a chainsaw that had been in the bathroom of the house was taken. Two dressing tables had also been rummaged through, and his gun had been kicked under the bed in his room. He didn't find that until two weeks later. He then realised it wasn't safe to leave the gun in the house any longer, and moved it out to the shed. He was scared of being shot in bed with it by strangers. He had also tried to make a number of other calls to the Gardaí to report break-ins and prowlers, but his calls to the station at Ballinrobe had gone unanswered. John Ward was 42 when he was shot dead by Podrick Nally. He was a loving son, brother, father and husband. He was the fourth in a family of 15. He, as one of the older seven children of John and Kate Ward, was born in England and the family moved back to Ireland and, having had a further seven children, they eventually settled down in Ballyshannon after moving around campsites in the area. He attended school in Manor Hamilton and liked playing sport, including football. They had very little while they were growing up, but the kids all had each other, and they were all very close. In Ballyshannon, they were accepted by the local community. His sister Winnie said that the locals didn't think of them as quote-unquote tinkers. 
John Sr., his father, collected tin and metals which he bought and sold. In his early years, he did a bit of tinsmithing. The children all remember being brought off to the countryside in a horse and cart with their father to collect the metal. John also helped his father and continued to buy and sell metal, including buying and selling cars. John married at 17. It was an arranged marriage to Marie McDonough, which was not at all unusual. They initially lived in the UK, but eventually settled in Sligo. He was a good husband and helped Marie out. He did washing and cooking for his kids, not something necessarily expected of men in their community. He made sure that Marie was able to take a rest, and he adored looking after his family. In September 2004, John began attending the psychiatric unit of the University College Hospital, Galway. He was hearing voices, hallucinating, and was depressed. He was admitted at the beginning of October as an emergency, and he was released on the 12th of October, two days before being shot dead. The rest of John's siblings weren't told of this. Marie had decided to keep John's stint in hospital quiet. When John had left school, he worked in a hotel and at a chicken farm with a local TD, Chuck Dodoli, the members of Irish Parliament. But despite this picture of being a pleasant and adoring family man, he was by no means a perfect person. He liked to take part in bare-knuckle boxing fights and was well known to the guardee. He had over 80 previous convictions on his record, ranging from road traffic offences to receiving stolen goods, drugs charges, trespassing and public order offences. When John died, there were four warrants out on him. He was known to be violent. On one occasion, he had entered a pub already drunk, and when he was refused service, he pulled out a Stanley knife on the bartender. In another incident, he attacked a car in Sligo with a woman and her two children in it with a slash hook and broke the back and side windows out. He once headbutted a prison officer while he was in court in Donegal in 2000. In 2002, he went after a member of the Gardaí with a slash hook and did the same again in May 2004 at a halting site on the Hedford Road in Galway. So which side of this man was the one that Podrick Nally found at his back door that day in October in 2004? Was it the loving family man, the man who was suffering from severe mental health problems, or the violent criminal with a long record? On Tuesday the 12th of July 2005, seven women and five men were sworn in for the trial of Podrick Nally for the murder of John Ward in the Central Criminal Court, sitting in the newly refurbished Castle Bar Courthouse. Presiding was Justice Paul Carney. Paul O'Higgins was senior counsel, with John Jordan assisting as junior. The defence was made up of Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, and Michael Bowman, barrister at law. Nally pled not guilty when the charge was read out to him. In the opening statements, the prosecution stated that Nally had intended to kill John Ward. He was suspicious of and disliked travellers, and had been made more anxious by break-ins to his property. Counsel stated, quote, John Ward was not necessarily at Mr. Nally's house for the sake of the good of the community on October 14th, but the penalty for larceny is not death, end quote. He told the jury, 
that they were to put their emotions aside and that the trial would be primarily about the law, which had to be applied as it is. They could not rewrite it or choose not to apply it. Tom Ward was the first witness in the stand and he told the jury about going out looking for cars with his father that day. They had stopped at Nally's to ask about a white Nissan sitting in the drive. He told the story of his father going into the house and then Nally approaching him and saying he, meaning John Ward, wouldn't be coming back. He saw Nally himself drive off and then recounted his drive to the local Garda station, stopping to ask for help. The defence questioned Tom about his business that day. How many cars had he bought and sold in the previous year, did he reckon? Tom said about 15. He denied that he had bought and sold cars quickly so that they couldn't be traced back to him. He insisted that he and his father had only been out trying to make a living that day. He had been in trouble with the law, for silly things, he said, but he wasn't a burglar. He denied that he was his father's getaway driver and that they were up to no good that day. He denied having been present when his father produced a slash hook and went after a Garda, or stealing a fireplace, or trying to destroy evidence and participating in break-ins. But the guardie present gave evidence that not only was Tom present for the slash hook incident, so was his mother, Marie. The incident involving the fireplace and the slash hook had actually taken place at the campsite that the family was staying at. The second day of the trial saw Professor Mary Cassidy, state pathologist, take the stand. She gave evidence of two gunshot wounds, as well as evidence of ten serious blows to John Ward's head. The gunshot wound to the chest was what had killed him. This shot had been fired in a downward trajectory. Ward would have been crouched low to the ground with Nally standing above him when the fatal shot struck. It entered his chest just below his left armpit and crossed slightly downwards through John's chest cavity and puncturing his heart and lungs. Imagine the way your body moves as you walk quickly away from someone, arms swinging. Though the bullet had entered his side, just under his armpit, he was shot from behind. The other gunshot wound was to his groin and was superficial. It would have been very painful, but not incapacitating. Ward had also suffered a broken arm, possibly sustained while attempting to defend himself from the blows to the head. Evidence was given by the Technical Bureau that this shot was fired from a distance no greater than four yards, while the fatal shot was fired from not greater than five yards. A neighbour of Nally's, Michael Varley, gave evidence of seeing and hearing the Ward's car that afternoon, and then Nally arriving at his house and telling him what had happened, that he had shot a traveller. Varley called 999 and handed the phone over to Nally, who, after talking to the police, headed home. Varley followed some minutes after and saw Ward's body lying behind the wall. He could tell by the look of him that he was dead. He also gave evidence that he had seen John Ward in the area previously, this time driving a Ford Mondeo. A number of neighbours gave evidence that they had seen the deceased in the area before his death. Some gave evidence of Nally's increasing anxiety and that they knew he was watching cars in the area and taking down number plates of cars he thought were unfamiliar or acting strange. He wasn't the only one in the community taking down licence plates. 
The courtroom was packed on the third day as Podrick Nally himself took the stand. He told the court about the various burglaries at his house and that he was becoming afraid to leave the place unattended. Not only did he take down number plates, but any time he would leave the house, he would throw a bucket of water over the dirt in the yard and at the gate in order to see if someone had been by the house while he was away. He said he often found footprints and tire marks left in the muck. He was scared that someone would arrive to the house when he was at home and attack him. He recounted how he had seen the two ward men in the year previous acting suspicious in the area, and that the night before the incident he had only slept for one hour. His fear was such that he wasn't able to get to sleep or stay asleep for long periods anymore. He told the story of hearing the strange car and finding John Ward in the farmyard at the back door, and the tussle that followed. He said he had only gotten his gun for protection, but he feared that the man wasn't alone and that he might be attacked by more trespassers. He described shooting John as he was leaving the property. He had said he just wanted to scare him and that he hadn't really aimed the gun, but when the man fell to the ground, he knew he was dead. He said, quote, I never intended to shoot anyone in my life. I was sorry for doing it. It was just spur of the moment. The way I was treated, I had to protect myself, End quote. He said that he had attacked John Ward when he saw him at his house. He didn't deny beating him or attacking him saying he had to take some sort of action, but that he was in fear of his life and had acted accordingly. He said he had gone out to Tom and told him that the intruder would not be returning in order to try and scare Tom off, to make sure that he didn't follow his father round the back of the house. He said that he had only reloaded the rifle again because he was contemplating shooting himself once he realised what he had done. Next, the psychiatrists who had treated Ward were called on to give evidence. They told the court of the violent behaviour he was involved in, and that John had admitted he was frightened of his own temper. But they all found him to be a pleasant and cooperative patient who complied with his treatment and respected the staff in the facilities he attended. Evidence was given that opiates, cannabis and tranquilizers were found in John's bloodstream on his death. Obviously, not all the medicine he had taken had been prescribed to him. Podrick Nally's sister, Maureen, took the stand and gave evidence that she had visited her brother every weekend. She told the court how she noticed a change in her brother's behaviour in the months prior to the death of John Ward, and that a number of things had been stolen from his house, including a chainsaw that she had bought him the year previous. He had become too frightened to leave the house unattended, and in spring 2004 had had difficulties lambing the sheep because he didn't want to leave the house empty while he was out in the fields. He was depressed and worried and was growing increasingly anxious. He wasn't able to sleep and was crying with the worry and fear of being broken into. The trial lasted six days. The prosecution asked the trial judge to direct the jury that the defence of self-defence could not be used to completely acquit Podrick Nally. They wanted to ensure that in this case, Nally would not be found not guilty because they said the amount of force used in the incident was excessive. The judge agreed and told the jury that they must find the defendant either guilty of murder or guilty of manslaughter. 
the jury would have to find that there was either mens rea, intent, to murder on Nally's part, or that Nally had used reasonable force when he shot Ward. The killing in and of itself was unlawful either way, so it had to be one or the other. The jury were to apply the law as it had been laid out to them and pick one of the two options. It came down to whether the jury would believe Nally had truly feared for his life and had therefore used appropriate force when he shot Ward. The jury took two hours and ten minutes to decide what they believed. At half two on Wednesday the 20th of July, the jury returned and found Podrick Nally not guilty of the murder of John Ward, but guilty of his manslaughter. Nally was sent home on bail to await sentencing, which occurred in November that year in Dublin. He got six years. The Ward family expressed their disappointment in the sentencing, as Nally's legal team announced that they would be appealing on the grounds that the jury had not been allowed to consider a full defence of self-defence to the shooting death. He was sent to Portleash Prison, where he occupied a cell on his own. He worked in the gardens while there, and generally tried to keep himself to himself and get on with things. His sister visited him, along with his neighbours, who were also looking after his farm while he was inside. They gave him updates on the land and how the animals were doing. He kept his head down and got on with things. The other prisoners, and even the prison staff, felt generally sympathetic to Nally, and most thought that he had acted in self-defence and didn't really belong there. In October 2005, the Court of Criminal Appeal granted leave and heard Nally's appeal. It was founded on one basis alone that the trial judge had erred when he told the jury that the force used by Nally was objectively disproportionate to the situation he had encountered. The defense argued that this was a matter for the jury to decide. They stated that the judge could have advised the jury that this was the case, but left it up to them to disagree with him, which he had not done. They were directed that a verdict of not guilty was not an option. Not only was there no precedent for allowing the judge to make this kind of decision, there was no precedent for ordering that a guilty verdict should be found, which was in essence what the judge's directions amounted to. It was argued that although there is provision in law for a judge to direct a jury to find someone not guilty due to insufficient evidence, there is no corresponding provision for the direction to find someone guilty. The Criminal Court of Appeal agreed with Nally's legal team. The trial judge had erred. The judgment against him was quashed, and a retrial was ordered. Nally was released on bail, and soon after returned to his farm to await his retrial. The Ward family said that they were, quote, traumatised by the ruling and many members of the travelling community felt that the decision reflected the social stigma attached to their ethnic group. Some said that the conviction would not have been overruled had Nally killed a member of the settled community. Of course, this social issue never came into play in the arguments before the CCA, but it's easy to see how the ruling played into the ongoing theme of discrimination against the travelling community in Ireland. The retrial was heard in Dublin at the Four Courts and began on December 4th, 2006. 
a jury of eight men and four women were sworn in this time. The evidence was much the same as what had been presented at the initial trial, although Nally himself did not take the stand. It's thought that this is probably due to the straightforward way he had answered questions in the first trial. He might have been a bit too forthright and honest on occasion, and given that most people in the country knew the details for the crime and the first trial, his defence team thought it unnecessary for him to take the stand this time. Tom Ward again took the stand, this time travelling from prison as he was serving an 11-month stint for possession of an offensive weapon at the time. Podrick's neighbours took the stand, as well as Marie Cassidy and the guardie who had attended at the scene. Evidence was also given of John Ward's mental state and his previous convictions. Mid-trial on the 7th of December, Podrick Nally was taken to St. James's Hospital with severe chest pains. He was kept overnight and given oxygen. Blood tests were taken and his heart was checked. The strain was showing. In the prosecution's closing statement, again delivered by Paul O'Higgins, senior counsel, he stated that Nally could only be innocent if they firstly believed that he had acted in self-defence and that his actions were objectively appropriate to the situation, using no more force than was reasonable to protect his own life. He argued yet again that Nally had intended to kill John Ward that day and that this was unreasonable force in the given situation. In short, Nally was guilty of murdering John Ward, and that should be what the jury returned as their verdict. Counsel for the defence obviously disagreed with the above statement. He criticised O'Higgins for even bringing up the concept of a murder charge, as it wasn't on the table in this case. He said that Nally had lived in a state of perpetual fear in his home, and that he had an honestly held belief that John Ward was going to kill him when Nally saw the man breaking into his home, He was acting in self-defence, and that was that. The jury were sent out to consider their verdicts at 3.25 on Tuesday the 12th of December, with the words of Justice O'Higgins presiding ringing in their ears. They were to judge the case on the evidence, and, quote, it would be quite wrong to say, there's the decent Mr. Nally, and isn't the country plagued with travellers? Your business is to decide the case according to the evidence and the law. Your business is to bring in a true verdict. You should not decide the case on your sympathy with Mr. Nally or your views on travellers. The jury took this duty seriously and took their time coming to a verdict. In the meantime, Podrick Nally was out and about in Dublin for the first time in his life. He'd never even walked down Grafton Street before, and everywhere he went he was greeted by well-wishers. Everyone recognised him and came to shake his hand and tell them that they stood by him. People would stop by his table at the hotel he was staying in to pass on their regards, and one woman even took care of his lunch tab. Podrick Nally was accompanied in Dublin by his sister and neighbours and friends who had all travelled to be with him from Mayo. Finally, on the Thursday evening at ten past six, the jury gave word that they had a verdict. The judge had already advised that he would accept a 10-2 majority if a unanimous verdict couldn't be reached, and that it was still possible for them to return a non-verdict. But the jury had continued on, and had returned a few times to ask for clarifications in certain parts of evidence. And now, here they were, 15 hours and 32 minutes after beginning deliberations, back with a verdict the jury reached a majority verdict of not guilty. 
Podrick Nally stood with his sister beside him and let the tears fall down his face. It was finally over. The court erupted as the journalists present clambered to get their copy in, with the sensational news that the retrial had returned the opposite verdict from the first. After the verdict, Podrick Nally made a short statement to the press thanking his legal team, family and friends for their support, and said he was very sorry for the Ward's family's loss. John Ward's family were devastated. The man who had shot and killed their husband, father and brother was to walk free. His brother Jimmy stated that there had been no evidence presented that John was actually there to commit robbery and the family was sure that Nally would not have been acquitted had John been a member of the settled community. The Mayo Traveller Support Group and most members of the travelling community felt the same. A spokesperson from the group said, quote, It's difficult to see how a fair-minded jury could acquit Podrick Nally on the basis of evidence that showed John Ward was killed by a shot in the back as he departed Nally's farm, after he had been beaten 20 times by a wooden plank and after he had already been shot, end quote. Not only was there an understandable concern raised about the status of the travelling community when it came to the fair application of law, it also now appeared to be the case that so long as the occupant of the home subjectively felt that there was a threat to his or her life, they could take lethal action against an intruder, even if they were fleeing the scene. This doubly affected the travelling community, as they often made their money calling door-to-door selling goods and services, particularly to farmers. If someone decided to shoot dead any traveller they found on their land, would they get away with it? Was it now okay to shoot travellers or other people who just happened to be on your land? Was a traveller's life worth less than their settled counterparts? Supporters of Podrick Nally had founded a support group in his name, and after the trial, called on the Minister for Justice to clarify the law in relation to homeowners' rights. They argued that the case was not, and never should have been, about travellers versus settled communities, and that the key issue was what steps a person, particularly vulnerable elderly people living on their own in rural Ireland, might take to protect themselves and their property if they felt threatened or were the subject of robbery or attacks. Despite somewhat sensationalist claims by the media that people now had a quote-unquote license to kill if someone entered their house, and the pervasive fear that continued to dog ever-shrinking communities of mainly elderly folks in the countryside, no action was taken by the government to address the uncertainty in the law until 2010. In that year, the Minister for Justice and Law Reform, at the time Dermot Ahern, introduced the criminal law Defence of the Dwelling Bill into the Oireachtas, the Irish Houses of Parliament. Although the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Persons Act 1997 had always allowed for the use of self-defence to protect themselves and property, the new Act would address the situation as it applied where self-defence was required in conjunction with trespass onto property. It was specifically stated in this bill that the use of reasonable force employed in self-defence during the attacks in the home or on the property would be protected by law, so long as it was an honestly held belief of the homeowner that there was a threat to them. There would be no requirement on lawful occupants to retreat in the face of an intruder. 
the new law would balance the specific right of an individual to protect their homes, families and property, and the general right to life and freedom from attack. The bill was passed on the 9th of December 2011 and came into effect the next month. Though this was an attempt to clarify the law in terms of the right of an occupant to protect their home and property, the legal term reasonable force still allowed for interpretation within this new law. It would be up to the courts and juries to decide what level of force was reasonable in any given situation. This law would remain untested until a case that was only concluded this year, in March of 2018. The circumstances in this case were that Martin Keenan, aged 20, and his wife had entered their home at the St. Joseph Park halting site in Finglas in North Dublin on the 5th of June 2016. When they got inside, they saw two people they said they didn't know in their bedroom, a man, 33-year-old Wesley Mooney, and his girlfriend, Kira Tynan. Keenan stabbed Mooney twice with a garden shears, who then fell to the ground in the mobile home. Before the Central Criminal Court, Kira Tynan told the jury that they had been invited back to an acquaintance's home for a drink that night, who had given them directions which led to an unlocked and empty caravan. They had gone inside to wait for their friend while he went off to the off-license. She said when Keenan and his wife entered the home and found them there, he told them to get out, and as they were leaving, he stabbed her boyfriend. Mooney was unarmed and died on the deck just outside the Keenan's home. In court, Keenan insisted that he thought the two were junkies who had broken into his house and he was frightened of them. The guy had come running at him, he said, and he just grabbed whatever was next to him to protect himself. Prosecuting counsel argued that Mooney was not attacking anybody and that therefore the use of force was wholly unnecessary in this case. The defence cited both the ruling in the Nally case at the Court of Criminal Appeal and the defence of the Dwelling Act. The jury could make a finding of guilty, not guilty, or not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. They had one question for the judge during deliberations. What exactly was different about the new law in the legislation? The judge responded that there was now no longer a requirement to retreat if somebody attacks you in your own home. Keenan was acquitted entirely of the murder of Wesley Mooney. It seems clear now that the law in Ireland provides protection for occupants in and on their property, and these days, you should enter at your own risk. Thank you for listening to the Men's Raya podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help others to find us, and I love to hear what you think. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Men's Raya Pod, and check out our discussion group on Facebook too for links to articles and pictures from cases that we cover. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Your support means a lot and helps to cover some of the costs of the production of the show. Don't forget that we have those new perks with new Men's Raya goodies and extra content and early content any small contribution helps so head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod and now to thank our five-star reviewers on apple podcasts thank you to i'm a fun fan that's a great name very happy to be part of your regular roster to tony 101 
crimes that haven't been done to death. I love your pun, Tony. Keep them coming. Thank you very much. And to Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, thank you very much for your five stars. Stories told with humanity and a fabulous accent. Thank you so much, Kate. That means a lot. So please do head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave your five-star reviews or even Facebook. I do read those ones as well. Any feedback at all, I really, really enjoy getting. So do please let me know what you think. Our theme song is Quinn Song, First Dance by Kevin McLeod. With thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound engineering. Next time on the Men's Riot Podcast, we're going to be discussing another crime to do with guns. This one from Scotland, which also changed the law. Till then, don't do anything I wouldn't do.